Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Relay Podcast. Um, we have Sanji here as our co-host for today. Usually it's just me, but Sanji decided to tag along. Um, we always love when Sanji's here. Alhamdulillah. Um, and we have another special guest for today. We have the one and only Hassan Munir from Yakin Institute. Assalamu alaikum, Hassan. How are you? Wa alaikum salam, my brothers. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing well. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Thank you for having me. Really uh, excited to uh, be on the podcast and have this conversation. Of course, it's an honor for us. I know we we try to get you on for a while. Well, you you caught me. I tried to run, but I'm here. Quite literally, he tried to run. He definitely he definitely tried to run, but uh, he's only two hours away. He was only two hours away by flight, so we would have caught him eventually. <laughs> Um, so, inshallah, uh, we can go straight into the topic um, of historical uh, impact of spread of Islam. Um, so, the first question that we have to kick things off is, how did Islam spread historically? Um, you know, now we have 2 billion Muslims in the world right now, but obviously it didn't always uh, start like that. So, Hassan, uh, if you just give us some context of the historical spread of Islam, some of the uh, demograph- demographics of um, uh, of how uh, the early Muslims spread or, or any insight into that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a, a topic that's very important to me, and I think it's, it's something that's on people's minds quite often. Um, you know, you'll find animations online, you'll find, you know, all kinds of discussion, and, and the animations, I think, do the best job at portraying this idea that there was this obscure region of the world called Arabia, not really relevant in the grand scheme of things. And then suddenly, you know, when you think about the expansion of religions or the expansion of empires, you see this small blip uh, in a place called uh, Medina or Mecca, depending on the type of map you're looking at. Um, and then there's like sort of a small uh, increase as time goes on in the in the impact that that's having in that part of the world in Arabia. And then suddenly, boom, what you see is this, uh, whatever this is that's being portrayed here. And of course, this Islam spreads all the way across the world map and then never looks back. It never stops spreading, alhamdulillah, right? And uh, all of us are beneficiaries of that, alhamdulillah. We have um, the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, first and foremost, through the mercy uh, and the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, but it has reached us through means, uh, many different kinds of means throughout history, um, reached our families or reached us as individuals, and we continue to uh, benefit even those of us who maybe are born Muslim or who are uh, you know, practicing Muslims. We continue to learn and we continue to benefit from uh, different trajectories of of knowledge and and you know information about the deen um, in history and you know we find scholars from different parts of the world with different insights with different points of benefit and and so the spread of Islam is something that isn't just a story of how uh, Islam necessarily reached us and we accepted and embraced Islam, alhamdulillah, but also how we continually uh, build our Islam every single day, all of the benefits um, that we try to gain through it every single day um, are, are sort of coming out of this story of the spread of the deen. Now, I wrote a paper for Yakin Institute on this topic a few years ago, um, or two papers, I should say, because there was a uh, preceding paper which was focused more on dismantling the idea that um, the notion, the slogan that Islam spread by the sword, uh, which is this um, sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric uh, cornerstone um, that's brought up again and again and actually has been brought up for centuries that um, the only thing that explains the success of Islam in terms of uh, demographics, as you said, is the fact that, um, or or the assumption they're making, what they're saying is a fact, that it was spread through violence. And, and obviously, a lot of this is back-projecting from the current discourse about, you know, associating Islam with terrorism, etc., and just... Uh, taking that back into history and giving this this longer view of Muslims have always done this, et cetera, et cetera. So I won't go into the details of that. Um, really, to summarize it, the story is that history is complicated, right? And if you ask a single person about their 
uh, Journey to Islam, what you'll find is a very complicated story, right? There's a lot of, of, of motivations. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of disentangling that has to happen. There's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. There's a lot of emotional struggle involved in that process. And so now when we are talking about the spread of Islam in the sense that people who are Muslim today, why are they Muslim? How did that come to be? This is an immensely complicated story. To, so to summarize it, um, uh, you know, in slogans such as Islam was spread by the sword, um, or even other slogans that we might use that we might apply in this situation. For example, Islam means peace, right? And obviously that's a well-intentioned thing that we say and others say about Islam as well. Um, but nevertheless, um, it's, it's from a historical standpoint, it's too simplistic, right? And we want to get into the nitty-gritty. We want to get into the stories, the specific um, details that we can learn because that's where we're really going to get the benefits that we want to draw and try to replicate those as we try to, you know, improve our own Islam and also convey uh, or relay the message of Islam to others. So that was the first paper. And that's sort of the summary of it, that history is a complicated place. And that's something for Muslims to understand. And I hope uh, they can find that paper, Did Islam Spread by the Sword? The second paper was you know, people were saying, okay, so if history is complicated, we still want a bit more information. If Islam did not spread by the sword, if that's sort of a meaningless, empty slogan that's not sort of borne out by the facts of history, then how did Islam spread? And so I wrote a second paper that's literally titled How Islam Spread Throughout the World, also with the Akin Institute. And this one was much longer. And there are so many examples. Like we said, there's so many stories, but I was just trying to uh, give a glimpse into some of the factors that are recurring uh, in this overall story of the spread of Islam across the world. So I'll give you a quick summary of what that entails. Um, the most important factor, obviously, is da'wah, and all of the other factors um, fall under the umbrella of da'wah. Da'wah is something that is... Um, embedded in the practice of a Muslim in the sense that the Islam that we practice um, should uh, not only be something that is, you know, privatized in the secular context, this is the world we live in, um, you know, it's not just about Muslims praying in their you know, room corner at home or something like that. But as we go out into society and every interaction that we have, it should be representative of our values and of our teachings that we have learned uh, from the Sunnah of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, from the Quran and from the example of, uh, you know, people who uh, we can tell exemplified uh, great character uh, throughout our history. Um, so, you know, that da'wah is the overarching kind of factor there. And then after that, we kind of get into other factors um, and those are trade. So that's one. Another one is migration uh, slash travel. A third one is marriage. And a fourth one is influencers. So in a lot of the stories that we learn and in a lot of the trends that we follow throughout history, these five factors overall, so da'wah, trade, migration, marriage, and influencers are, you know, either there's one or more of them involved, or at least one of them is almost always involved in um, somebody embracing Islam, someone's journey to Islam. Um, and one thing that you will notice is that all of them entail interaction. Right. They entail sort of interpersonal relations. And that's a very important point to pick up, I think, immediately when we look at, again, these factors represent certain trends that we see across history, uh, trade, you know, migration or travel, marriage influencers. In all of these, there's a strong interpersonal element. Um, and it's not necessarily or at least it's rarely the case that, for example, somebody is sitting in isolation and they pick up a translation of the Quran or they pick up uh, some book or something, you know, that they come across or some uh, intuitive uh, experience that they have, etc. Like, but it happens in isolation with no other people involved. And that should underscore for all of us the importance, again, of um, how much of a role we have to play, uh, including, you know, in today's world where, you know, we often direct people to, hey, watch this YouTube video or read this book, etc. When we are trying to give them da'wah, um, not realizing that 
the the lack of interpersonal relations there might actually um you know become a detriment to that person properly understanding islam and coming closer to it and hopefully embracing it but we need to be involved on a person-to-person level right uh in that process so you know i don't want to go into like a lot of examples and we'll go into some of them uh as we look at a particular region of the world later on in this podcast but i just wanted to to highlight that and when you read islamic history um and of course you can read the paper uh, alhamdulillah it's well referenced so you can read even more afterwards as well if you're interested um but always keep these factors in mind and it's important to reflect on what the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam taught us about all of these things so da'wah trade migration marriage influencers what are the islamic teachings related to these specific activities or aspects of life uh because those islamic teachings inform how we enact these you know how we live out these uh different factors that i'm mentioning here and that historically has been responsible for as we said 2 billion muslims today these have been the primary factors um and so you have to draw all of those connections for each particular story that you look at because that is where we're going to get uh the insights but i'll stop there for now and and we'll see how we want to dig into this Hassan I I heard you say at some point in the podcast convey the message and then you cor- corrected it and said re- relay the message and I I, I want to thank you for uh, catching up there I I thought I was going to have to jump in and tell you uh you know he got to got to got to use the brand terms but uh, <laughs> um you know mashallah that, that was a great breakdown I think one thing with related to um uh the sword and this concept of of Islam being spread by the sword that many people don't understand is you can't force conviction right there's no way to force conviction in someone's heart. If Islam would not flourish the way it has if it was forced down everyone's throat, right? Yeah. So, um subhanallah, that that's it was it was beautifully said. Um I want to get into the western converts before we get there. I I want to I want to touch on something because I I think what just came to mind while you were speaking is uh especially here in America and I'm sure it's the same in Canada and and the UK, but we we have this perception of Muslims being Arab or desi right but the earliest earliest muslims in these lands were not that right so can you can you speak a little bit more to that and 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 who were the earliest muslims in these lands um it was a very diverse community i think you know and and that, that's that's something that is essential to realize you know i had i had the question of um who you know when we think about the first western converts to islam for example right and and many times if you look up this question or or you even discuss it with other muslims one of the answers that you might get is uh, suhaib ar-rumi right radiyallahu anhu he's a known sahabi of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um a bit of a distinction there in the sense that he was of arab origin but he was known as ar-rumi because he spent some time in anatolia and what is turkey today and that is the region that was referred to as um uh that that was referred to as a room right even where the famous uh poet and and faqih gets his um sort of name from the popular name that he's known by a rumi right um doesn't mean that he was from rome even though the, the name has obviously a connection to um the original name of rome um but it was a very diverse community right and that's important to understand because there were a lot of uh you know abyssinians um there were even from the arabian peninsula a lot of um uh people from the different tribes right and the and the interesting thing is without going into like the long litany of examples you have of course you know like the the salman al farisis uh you know radiyallahu anhu from uh persian background and and others as well and and interestingly every part of the world has almost some kind of a legendary story of of some person from their part who was a sahabi uh you know <laughs> purportedly of the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam who had traveled and met the prophet etc etc so we don't know you know we can't always verify and then most of the time it's it might just be a later invention of a story but um nevertheless i think the the important point there is that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh actually acknowledged you know when we when we talk about it wasn't necessarily that he minimized those differences he acknowledged 
the the differences, the distinctions, the diversity of his community, but he taught us how to uh, understand that diversity and what that diversity should empower us, enable us to do, and what that diversity uh, can lead us to that is risky for our iman and our success as a community. So he outlined all of these teachings for us, but, you know, we do have, even after Islam, you know, we have the Ansar, but there are still some, you know, Aus and, and Khazraj, those distinctions exist, and um, you know, and, and similarly for all the other Arab tribes and, you know, the knowledge of uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, for example, someone who was known for his knowledge of genealogy, using that knowledge, you know, not just to address the Arabs as a people, right? When the Prophet wasallam was, was even giving da'wah, um, and this is in Mecca, when he was still in Mecca, and there would be obviously Arabs gathered uh, from across the, the, what was the Arab kind of context at the time, um, and they had their distinctions, but he wasn't kind of going just generally address the Arabs all the time. Perhaps sometimes he did that. But one of the specific things that we know is he would go to each individual tribe uh, and take Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu with him because he was the expert in genealogy in the lineage of that particular tribe. So acknowledging those distinctions and getting specific with the da'wah, right? Even at the personal level, which is maybe something we can come back to in a bit, um, getting to the personal level, like personalizing the da'wah, right? And I think in a lot of, for us today, in a lot of our, um, a lot of our passion for for da'wah, uh, kind of translates into uh, we want to mass produce it, right? We want to develop these resources that will be applicable in all different contexts and and we want you know converts to to benefit or non-muslims who are interested in islam we want them to benefit from them etc etc and while that effort is extremely important i'm not sort of you know discrediting that in any way um it's, it's very beneficial and, and may allah bless all those who are involved in it nevertheless most of the work in da'wah and i see this borne out because my primary frame of reference is history again stories of how people have converted and of course the the best history is the life of the Prophet وسلم, is getting very personal, getting very um, sort of uh, familiar with the people that you are speaking to and what resonates with them and what's going to, what are the challenges, what are the lived experiences that inform their journey so far. And when you bring Islam into the conversation, those teachings that you're telling them about, what are they going to engage those teachings with? What they already know from what they've lived and what they've seen and what they've heard and all these things um, and so it was a very diverse community and that's something that the Prophet وسلم, uh, taught us uh, to navigate and that's been sort of the case of uh, you know throughout history although obviously like human weakness um, we do have our histories of, of, of racism within Muslim communities and and you know kind of as you alluded you know there there are um, some people or people of certain backgrounds are seen as as more Muslim or, you know, because their people have, quote unquote, been Muslim for a longer time, et cetera, et cetera. But all of this is it, it's really not in line with with the spirit of Islam and the teaching of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right. Because he, he also and the Quran itself. Right. But also uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam warned us about kind of leaning on lineages, leaning on our history that we've been Muslim for this long, et cetera, et cetera. There's a benefit, right? There's inspiration and, and there's a momentum that we can draw from our histories, the histories of our families and, you know, everything that, alhamdulillah, we've had the the opportunity and the blessing to do in the service of Islam and, and all those kinds of things are, are important. But nevertheless, there's also warnings to counterbalance that, that do not become over-reliant, do not become proud, certainly, do not become sort of arrogant about um, and this is the worst thing to be arrogant about, you know, associating your particular uh, sort of culture or your particular background um, with Islam, because that is sort of the that's the kind of ignorance that the Prophet وسلم, you know, more than anything came to eradicate. Um, I have a question about the already mentioned uh, uh one of the means of that was uh, that this Abad process on mute was to uh, get familiar with the community, um, and that was the most effective means of that. Were there any examples of this Abad doing this? Um, 
in various communities, like falling out, were there any specific examples of at least have a going through foreign communities and and uh, uh, sitting down with them, becoming one of their locals? Um, was wondering if there's any stories uh, that come to mind with that. So, so you mean actually like becoming familiar with their like going with them and right. becoming familiar, right? Um, yeah, there's there's many sort of examples of that. Um, one of the one of the most prominent ones that always comes to mind is um, of uh, Mu'ad uh, radiyallahu anhu, um, who the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam sent to Yemen, and this was one of the uh, things that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did uh, very late uh, in his worldly life. Um, you know, before he passed away, and there's this touching story of the conversation that they had, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually alluded to the fact that they might not uh, meet again. Um, but in particular, he was sent to Yemen, right? He was sent to Yemen, and one of the things that strikes me about that um, about that narration, uh, or or one iteration of the narration of the advice that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave him um, in ter- in terms of how to give the da'wah, or is this part where um, do not alienate them, right? Do not alienate them. You have to, you have to build that familiarity. You have to, and 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 you think about all of the things that might encompass, right? We cannot talk at people. We have to talk with people, and that's a two-way conversation. It always has to be two-way. How do you start that conversation? It's like we we acknowledge you know, your your culture, we acknowledge your lived experiences, we acknowledge that there's things you've been through, there's things you've learned, there's some value in them that perhaps even in your life as a non-Muslim, you have been able to achieve some good, even though without Islam, you would never be able to achieve complete good, or, or we could say real good in the sense that it would be, you know, good in the grand scheme of things and, and you know, lead you to good in the hereafter. All of those things, but it, it has to be... Um, you know, you have to establish that that comfort and that familiarity while obviously not compromising your own beliefs and values in any way. But it's very important that the Prophet ﷺ reminded him, um, you know, in this in this particular uh, context, um, that do not alienate them, right? Or other examples um, might be, uh, you know, when um, the Prophet ﷺ sent certain Sahaba in the early period in Medina. Um, or when the Prophet ﷺ himself tried to give da'wah to try to appeal to the leaders, right? To try to, because he's recognizing that there is a certain, that doesn't mean he's not going to give da'wah or the Sahaba are not going to give da'wah to uh, somebody who has a, maybe a lower, you know, um, socioeconomic status in that society. But they recognize that there's a certain structure in this culture in which the leaders have great influence, right? And if you... Um, if you basically win over uh, the leadership, so this is the conversion story, most famously of Saad ibn Mu'ad, radiallahu uh, anhu, in Medina, right, where he actually came to the da'i, and he was um, the the purpose was to push the da'i away, right? Um, but they had a conversation, and they had a calm conversation, and then he converted to Islam, went back to his tribe, and told them, you know, I I have nothing to do with you if you do not convert to Islam. Right. And then, you know, I'm paraphrasing the story. There's a lot of fascinating, beautiful gems and details in there. Um, but but nevertheless, um, the tribe, as is narrated, had basically by the end of the day, again, to paraphrase, converted to Islam because of that social influence that he had. So, you know, that between those two examples, like you want to know about their their culture, you want to know about their their language. Right. You want to know there's you want to know what is going to resonate with them and also what exists within their culture that you can, what avenues can you kind of direct your da'wah into that already exist, right? And and the expression is sort of like, you have to get Islam into the drinking water, right? You have to get Islam into the uh, whatever it is, whether you're talking to a group of people or you're talking to a, a community, whatever it is, you have to get it into the drinking water in the sense that everybody will be affected by it in some way as they drink it right so what are those how do you do that how do you get it in there and and there's many sort of countless other examples as well but i think we got a a long history to cover here so i don't know how long i should go (laughs) just like my head um you know i i want to kind of like focus in now on um specifically in in maybe like the america canada uk like this area um 
And so who were the earliest people who were Muslims in, these er in this area? We can start there and then we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it, you know, piece by piece. Sure. Um, this is a, a great question to ask, I think, especially for those of us who live in this part of the world. What is the history of Islam in the region in which we live? Um, the first, uh, the earliest Muslims um, would have to be most likely, again, there's a lot of theories about, you know, did, were Muslims here before Columbus? And, and a lot of this does link back to the Muslim experience of Al-Andalus, Muslim rule in uh, in the, the Iberian Peninsula, in what is Spain and Portugal today. Um, and the experience of the fall of Al-Andalus, um, you know, kind of forced the Muslim population living there into very difficult circumstances where they um, had to basically leave and find a new place to live or continue to try to, you know, live out an existence in the Iberian Peninsula, but they at the very least nominally had to convert to Christianity. Um, and those who nominally, they were of Muslim background, but at least nominally they converted to Christianity. And we don't know at, at the point of the sword, basically, right? Um, they were forced to through the Spanish Inquisition. Um, one of the places, and, and Alhamdulillah, that became a refuge because it was, uh, quote unquote, discovered not too long after, or, you know, Columbus kind of ran into it, was the Americas. Um, and so many of these Moriscos, as they're known, um, these people of Muslim background, but we aren't sure we aren't sure of their their actual um, status of belief and all of these things uh, because of the, the very difficult circumstances of coercion that they were put in. Um, they found a safe haven in what is New Spain. So the Spanish were obviously the first uh, major empire to, uh, you know, colonize the Americas. Um, West regions of North America and and pretty much all of South America as well, um, and so you find these Moriscos now because obviously it's a safe haven. Why, even though it's still the same Spanish laws and Spanish authority and things like that, um, but nevertheless it's less regulated, right? Because it's uncharted territory. You can come here and you can run off into the woods and maybe you can find safety with the with the. Uh, native peoples, the indigenous peoples, there's all kinds of possibilities that you don't necessarily um, have to uh, to take advantage of uh, if you remain in Spain. So there's many examples um, as in the very early 1500s of Muslims um, from, uh, you know, uh, certain Muslims from Morocco. So again, this is and all of that Andalus context, right? Um, so Mustafa Azamuri is from Azamur in Morocco, um, or maybe he was from further south in West Africa, and he was enslaved in Morocco and then brought over and uh, if part of the Narvaez expedition. And, you know, in the 1520s, he is exploring what will today be Florida. And then it's a very long story, very fascinating story. Um, but there's, there, there's traces even there of him becoming the first non-indigenous person to interact with some of the indigenous peoples in the southern United States um, because he got lost and he walked across what is now Texas and and New Mexico and that region northern Mexico um, you know for eight years in in like the 1520s um, so I don't want to go into like too many specifics of, of too many stories because it's fascinating stuff but basically you have the transatlantic slave trade through which obviously to now colonize the Americas you need a lot of labor um, so and and there's sort of a racial justification that is applied by the European powers, uh, again heavily by the Spanish as well, to um, take advantage of the um, you, you know certain uh, political and, and military context in which they were able to um, gain access to uh, people who were enslaved from West Africa, including many many Muslims, millions of Muslims. Um, uh, and then bring them over to the Americas um, and use them primarily for, for labor and for colonizing the land. So you have Muslims in that context. Then you have what we might refer to as pseudo-Muslims or Moriscos, people whose status isn't unclear, but occasionally in reports you'll find references um, to them saying that I fasted in Ramadan. Because, you know, once somebody was um, 
found, you know, once there was some suspicion, because then you had the Mexican Inquisition based off of the Spanish Inquisition. So once there was some suspicion in Mexico City or somewhere in the area that, you know, you were you were practicing Islam secretly or anything like that, you would be brought and forced to confess in front of the Inquisition. And that's how we get some of these stories of, of, of women, Maria Ruiz, in the 1590s, confessed to this Mexican Inquisition in Mexico City that she had fasted in Ramadan and things like that. And you have random, like, village fishermen saying that, you know, I am going to Muhammad's paradise, etc., etc. So, you know, all these interesting kind of glimpses. Um, and the Spanish, one thing that they were extremely concerned about Again, perhaps because of their very recent sort of experience of Muslim rule, which lasted uh, eight centuries pretty much uh, in Spain, um, they were very, uh, you know, concerned about the Dawah, basically, right? They were very, very wary of the Muslims are going to come here. They're very aware that Muslims and, and the, the kind of person that Islam, when is properly taught and practiced, the kind of person you become is that you embody the deen, meaning that no matter what circumstances you're put in, no matter where you end up, etc., etc., um, you are going to uh, not only be able to continue to practice the deen, and there's so many ways to do it, right? Um, but also you are, it's, it's part of your deen to try to bring others towards that guidance. It's, and they recognize that. Right. And so we talk about Trump's Muslim ban, but the Spanish were banning Muslims in, in multiple edicts and things like that, you know, in the 1500s. And this was only decades after they, they themselves first arrived there. Um, and that's, you know, gives you an indication of how concerned they were, but perhaps also of um, the fact that maybe there were, for example, West African enslaved Muslims um, in the Americas who ran away from the plantations or from the building sites or what have you and, you know, went and found refuge with the indigenous people or, or started to convert uh, the non-Muslim enslaved, etc., etc. Um, and and the, the, the punishment was severe. And in one particular case, I remember reading about um, in Cusco, uh, in Peru today, um, where uh, a, a Muslim was caught giving da'wah, um, or actually I should say was suspected of giving da'wah because what is the, what's the evidence, right? Um, but this is in the records that he was accused of spreading the da'wah of Islam, and the punishment for that was, was being boiled alive. Right. He was he was boiled alive in public as as a punishment to try to deter others. And the severity of that, as well as actually trying to ban, even though you're bringing in enslaved people, but you're telling the enslavers to not bring enslaved Muslims because there's something different about these people. And the most dangerous difference that they have is that they're able to organize themselves and they're able to organize others around them by spreading these teachings that they believe in. Um, so if you go to like St. Augustine, Florida, for example, which is the oldest uh, continuously inhabited uh, European settlement um, in North America, primarily built by enslaved Muslim labor. And you read into the history of St. Augustine uh, when they were building that town, that was a constant concern that they had there as well, that the um, Muslims would basically run away and try to give da'wah to the non-Muslim enslaved and the indigenous people. And, and that would be a huge, huge problem for the Spanish. So with regards to, I guess, the, the idea of, you know, converts now in, in, in the Western, um, in America, Canada, etc. Um, how, how, how did that start? Because I, I think, you know, we, we hear about uh, these great figures like Malcolm X, for example, and that, yeah. that's someone um, that's someone I was really excited to hear, hear more about as well. Um, so how, how did that, that come about? And what is the impact of these Western converts on, on Islam as we know it today? Um, by the way, one of the stories I wanted to share, I just forgot in the, the previous sort of question there is, um, I know I'm talking to uh, New Yorkers here. So, um, you know, Anthony the Turk, <laughs> and this is literally the, uh, the expression that was used for the longest time in, in European history of somebody converting to Islam, you know, conversion is a very modern, like, kind of modern demography kind of concept, right? But even even Islamically, it's it's Aslama, right? Submit to Islam, which when they translate it, by the way, into history books becomes, it, it becomes very challenging when they try to kind of 
you know, dissert, like, you know, try to get a good sense of what someone's beliefs were at a particular point, you know, the history books will translate to somebody submitted to Islam, right? Or they just, or they submit it. What does that mean? In translation, that sounds really weird. And then in European context, it it's turned Turk, something they would often say, you became a Turk. So, you know, that person turned Turk, they, they you know, became a, a Muslim, they they, rene- they renegade from Christianity and, and embrace Islam. Um, but but th- that's another example, right? When we talk about early uh, Western converts to Islam, um, and and sort of the the impact that they have. Now we're talking at an individual level of introducing Islam uh, in the lands that that we live in today. So Anthony the Turk is this individual who is the son of uh, uh, of um, his father who converted, um, his name was Jans Zun. He converted and he changed his name to Rais Murad the Younger. Again, long story, but he became a pirate, a Muslim pirate in North Africa. And he married a woman named Margarita from Spain, who was also Muslim. And then their son, uh, Anthony the Turk, moved to New Amsterdam, later known as New York City, and became the first uh, settler in the first non-indigenous person to live in what is now Brooklyn, uh, specifically in the Coney Island area. And, you know, you can go to the Brooklyn Museum and kind of see all of the, see his his land grant and find other details about him, this exceptionally tall, mixed uh, Dutch. So he's of Dutch background from his father and he's of Spanish background from his mother. Um, and he's he's Muslim and he was known for carrying his Quran with him. Um, and, and might be the first person to, to I don't know, openly read Quran in New York City um, in, in history. We're talking about like sort of the 1600s here, right? Um, and, uh, and, and you know, just um, married, which was something considered horrible at the time, but he, he married a free black woman. Um, and, and obviously this is in the context of a lot of uh, anti-black racism and uh, enslavement and all of these things are, are still going on uh, in New York City at the time. Um, so again, thinking about the impact that um, Western converts have had is that they have been, I think, the, they, they paved a lot of ground for Muslims of other backgrounds, um, and especially the immigrant communities, to come to this part of the world, um, and and the credit is is I mean I was going to say not often given, but really it's not given at all, right? And and some of that might be ignorance, we might say willful ignorance, or just the fact that we just choose not to study any history or discuss any history, um, except for like a few kind of almost cliche repeated history topics and our masajid and stuff like that uh, but we don't discuss our history in this land enough um, where you have people you know like um, even even movements that were were from a theological standpoint that were were um, not adhering to the teachings of Islam the nation of Islam for example um, and others as well um, using the language of Islam and introducing it into society again not introducing islamic beliefs because they did not have those those you know the the core islamic beliefs that make you a muslim right but that language that they introduced um into the society and paving the road not just for for example you know like uh we have the famous examples of malcolm x and and muhammad ali and even the 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 less famous examples associated with them like ella collins right malcolm x's uh older half sister who embraced islam before him years before him orthodox islam and then she actually you know like facilitated a lot of what Malcolm is known to have achieved was facilitated behind the scenes by his older half-sister. Um, but even, you know, thinking about um, uh, Masajid, right, that w- started out as what were known as the Nation of Islam uh, temples, right, etc. Um, even uh, thinking about how that you know, even before the immigrant communities and coming more into modern history, but um, Sheikh Dawood Faisal and, and uh, you know, Sister Khadija Faisal, who were uh, immigrants from the Caribbean and settled in the New York area and teaching the the Orthodox Islamic teachings for decades earlier before even the Malcolm X's and, you know, the Muhammad Ali's uh, started to embrace Orthodox Islam. All of this activity was going on. Um, you have Western converts to Islam. Uh, I, did a, I did a talk once on the history of 
Latino Muslims um, and their role in starting some of the, the you know, Latino Muslim women uh, converts uh, to Islam, you know, as early as the 1930s teaching Quran classes in California when there were hardly any immigrant Muslims there um, to, to do that, right? But teaching Quran classes, you would presume to who? Right is the question. There must have been other converts. So you have like again, and and this is a specific woman whose whose story we know that she was teaching Quran um, in in California, right uh, along the Mexican border. So you know there's there's all of these stories, and then you you think about the the larger impact um, of those those nation of Islam temples, for example, that turn into masjids. They just because the 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 adherents uh, actually embrace Orthodox Islam. And on that, just thinking about the fact that, for example, Imam Wariddin Muhammad, right? Um, when he, you know, and, and to really kind of put this into, into perspective, would there be an Imam Wariddin Muhammad? Because people would jump to a lot of conclusions and a lot of controversies very quickly here. Would there be a Imam Wariddin Muhammad Historically, I mean, Allah knows best, but from the story that we do know, if there was no nation of Islam, you know, he's the, he's the son of Elijah Muhammad. And that that teaching kind of um, that uh, not even the teaching, but um, I'm choosing my words carefully here because it's a very sensitive topic in many different ways. But um, again, that language that was introduced and some of the teachings and some of that uh, relation that was introduced to the wider um, kind of reference to Islam on the global scale and the wider Muslim community is part of the story of Imam Wariddin Muhammad embracing Islam, right? Um, Orthodox Islam in the 1970s. And then 70,000 members, the largest mass conversion um, probably of any faith to any faith in American history, 70,000 members of the nation of Islam converting to Orthodox Islam, like actual Islam with him, right? Um, and so when we, when, we, when we find like these, these you know, the immigrants uh, communities like myself, people like myself, you know, coming in um, and there's already, you know, obviously the, the, there's a lot of masajid that have to be built and a lot of things that have to be done, but there's also infrastructure that exists but i think more importantly there's a certain familiarity in the wider society that exists already by the time you know the the immigration really takes off and that was done by really latino converts um you know black converts to islam also people like um you know alexander russell webb etc they play a role in that and i think that that's something that has to be appreciated and again you know, in each of these stories, there's a lot of things to kind of um, appreciate. And there's a lot of things to uh, really make sure that we understand correctly. And that's not what we can discuss over a podcast that requires a lot of homework for myself and yourselves and the people who are listening to make sure that we go and study this this history uh, in as much detail as possible. Um, in regards to the demographics we're talking about, uh, I know, like, especially since me and Saadi live in New York, uh, a lot of the Muslims, uh, we probably see our majority Arab or Desi, and still a large African-American Muslim population as well. Do you have any insight into uh, what the larger uh, demographics of the U.S. looks like in terms of uh, Muslims in the U.S. Or, or even, like, outside of that, in the Western context, like in the U.K., I know, for example, there's a ton of Bengali, but I'm Bengali myself. There's a ton of Bengali in the UK, specifically Silek, uh, where I'm from too. So uh, I know there's some differences between like the UK and the US. So I was wondering if you just have some insight into the current uh, demographics right now. Um, I don't know the, the demographic number specifically. I will say that um, I believe, uh, you know, estimates of like um, a quarter or more, right? So I, I believe it's different numbers might range from 25 to maybe like uh, up to even 35% um, of, of American Muslims might be um, African Americans, right? So don't quote me on that. That's a number that maybe has even changed since I last read it. But um, the, the point being that a, a very significant uh, section of the Muslim community uh, are, are African American, right? 
Um, and that is something. And, and for Canada, we have a much, much smaller, like, you know, Afro-Canadian, uh, African-Canadian community here. Um, still significant in terms of their, their contributions and in terms of, uh, you know, everything that they bring to the wider Muslim community. They're, they're obviously extremely appreciated, just like Muslims of all backgrounds. Um, but particularly because of, again, similar to the United States, because of their history and this particular, um, this land that we live in and, and all of the ways that they have uh, paved the way for us. Um, uh, again, people like Ella Collins, right, who used to come up to Toronto all the time, even Malcolm X and uh, and Muhammad Ali and, and many, many other examples of what they've done um, and, and many you know, incredible local scholars and, um, you know, people like Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick and, and just incredible stories up here in Canada as well. So I want to give you some detail on Canada. Um, but, you know, in terms of the demographics, it's, it's I, I think in stories about conversion, and I don't think this is what you were um, sort of implying, but um, it is important to keep in mind, again, like to break it down to the, the personal level. Right. Um, there are there are Muslims of and, and history really helps us to do that. Again, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu whose knowledge of genealogy, right, and establishing that familiarity, not just for da'wah purposes in terms of inviting people to Islam, but also appreciating our communities for the diversity that they have, for the diversity of, of our stories, our experiences and and all of the the things that we can learn from each other. Right. And and I think, you know, uh, irrespective of demographics we go into masajid we go for juma etc um and and how often do we even say salam to the person sitting next to us right before they leave or when we arrive or whatever the case might be on either side like do we know do we know each other right we can't be one ummah we can't be one community or be united or any of these things that we want to achieve when we don't even know each other Right. We don't put in the effort to get to know each other. Like, brother, I've seen you at the masjid for like the last 10 years in a row. Like, I mean, I should at least know your name. Right. Or like a little bit of what your story is. And you should know mine and you should know what I can help you with. I should know what, I, you know, you can help me with. When do I reach out to you, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this is how we build community. Right. Um, and and I think the, um, the 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 demographic discussion sometimes not always it's an important conversation to have um, but I, I think it can lead to like we're we're all sometimes that we might reify the kind of um, unfortunate divi uh, divisions within the community when we when we you know intention our intention is actually to resolve those by talking about um, you know which what kind of masjid is that is that like a Somali masjid is that a Pakistani masjid right is that a Caribbean masjid Guyanese etc etc you know I'm going to say Trinidadian masjid uh, which uh, where Sanjay can be the imam inshallah one day but, uh, or, or at any masjid Sanjay inshallah I think you'd be great mashallah um, but uh, we, we got to be careful to just make sure that when we're talking about both appreciating the people in our communities and, uh, you know, appreciating the wider public and our love for them, which is what drives our da'wah for them, because we're so grateful for what we have. The greatest blessing we have is Islam, right? And so when we want to share that with other people, that's out of love, that's out of concern for them. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, you don't have to think about, you know the the thousands of people, the hundreds of people, if, and and there, you know one, I forget the exact hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but for you, for one person to be guided through you, is something that is is extremely you know precious compared to like the most valuable thing that you can think of in the world, right? So think about the one person, and then think about the person beside you. Think about your non-Muslim neighbor, right? Think about instead of going into like the the broader conversation and trying to like impact sort of change at a mass level and things like that disclosure or disclaimer i'm not an imam uh, <laughs> uh but uh I, while we're on the topic of, of imams i i definitely want to shout out uh, imam saraj wahaj uh here in in, in new york city and yeah. all the work that he's done and he's been a uh, a pillar in our community and in america uh Absolutely. when we talk about yeah when we talk about the impact of western converts he is definitely up there um in terms of uh what's next let's go into some rapid fire uh rapid fire questions um 
Hassam, you don't know what I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. And Shaquille, All right. feel free to jump in with the next one. Uh, where is What's next on your bucket list? Where's the next destination that you're going to visit? Like that next big place. I know you've been to Uzbekistan. I know you've been to many different countries, but where have you not been that you that you want to go? Um, I really want to go to Egypt. Um, so I'm hoping, inshallah, that that'll come about. Nice, nice, inshallah. Anywhere, anywhere specific? Any, any like, give, give me the history. Uh, not, not the entire history. <laughs> but where, where is, where is like that one place that you want to go to? Um, you know, there's a. There, I want to go to Azhar. I want to go. There's a lot of iconic places, especially in Cairo, uh, in in the Cairo area, right? Um, yeah, Imam Shafi. Uh, you know, just recite Fatiha. Um, at at his grave, uh, Sayyid and Nafisa, and and many others. You know, there's there's Egypt is one of those places where you know it always comes up in the list of like, oh, this all of these Sahaba might be buried there, or they might be buried somewhere else, etc. Right, and in places like that, you just kind of go and walk the streets and 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 try to imagine, and then all of the other history for me, like I could just go walk a random street there and think about like you know Mansa Musa visiting the citadel or like all all kinds of the stories that have taken place there. Um, so Cairo mainly, but, um, you know, other places would be great. Aswan, um, the gate to the south, right, to to Sudan, another extremely beautiful, important place um, in our Ummah, uh, going to Alexandria, other places, inshallah. So so we'll see. Maybe we could do it together. Inshallah, we, def- yeah. we definitely could. Uh, Road trip to Egypt, right? <laughs> it's uh shaquille you know what's fascinating is he gave us like a whole breakdown of egypt but he didn't mention the pyramids once and that's how i know he's like a history guy because like literally the first thing i would go to is like the pyramids <laughs> so yeah, we'll go there we'll go there inshallah but uh yeah i have a follow-up so, to that um so i i was just go, uh skimming through uh your website i history and uh these all a lot of these are topics you would never even think of diverting into like uh the early history of diabetes in the Islamic world or epidemics in the Quran or the Islamic prehistory of Valentine Day, right? So you've clearly studied so many different topics that no one else would, would think of even researching, right? So some I wanna ask you was what was your most uh what was the most interesting to you to, to study or the most or, or, or your favorite uh, period in, in history that you study or even like topic that we would look into. That's not rapid fire, man. That's a whole podcast on itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I, uh, I just got really curious. I was like looking through it right now. Yeah, no. Um, uh, honestly, I love uh, Islamic sort of social and cultural history. I think we focus a lot on like the political history and the military history and things like that, and not you know I, I love to read about what the day to day life of muslims was like in different times and places right like where what did they eat what did they wear like what kind of mannerisms did they have what languages did they speak how did they go to school etc because i think those are the most relatable and and um that's a lot of where the day-to-day kind of benefit and guidance that we we can benefit from will come out of as opposed to you know like i'm not I'm not the next sultan of, of, I don't know, Canada, right? So it's we read about like, oh, like, you know, sultan this and this did this. I'm like, that's, you know, I can learn some things from that, but I think I should go learn from like what a student's life was like at Azhar and like, you know, 500 years ago, for example. Um, but out of those, so I'll just to keep it rapid fire kind of style, I'll say um, uh, the history of uh, diabetes uh, in the Muslim context was a very personal subject. So I've been diabetic my whole life. Um, and, and so that's what got me into researching that. And I was expecting to find nothing, right? Um, because you think about like modern medicine and, and that that seems to be the history. That's the story. I read the history of diabetes so many times before I even did this search. Um, and then you start finding all of these things and that kind of, um, it, you know, it, it kind of reinvigorated for me this, this this love for history that there's so much out there right and even just i'm not looking at like chinese sort of like i'm not looking at any history really outside of the muslim context or where muslims were involved in some way um and even that is just like it's an ocean that you know doesn't end right you'll just keep swimming and swimming in it um and and it's beautiful and there's so much to learn from it and there's so much to 
to give to people with specific experiences of, about their history, right? We need to broaden our horizons and and stop giving the same example. I love Salahuddin, but we got to stop talking about him every single time we bring up Islamic history because there's a lot of other people and there's a lot of other incredible stories, right, that, that are equally important for us to know and, and full of benefits and gems. So um, that was something that was really personal to me and, and got me almost excited about history again at a time that because it does get dull as well right it's a lot of it's a pretty tough when people tell me it's boring i'm like i agree man it's like it, it can get boring pretty quickly if you can't find ways to make it exciting for yourself so um alhamdulillah favorite food asal that's not pakistani um it used to be adults, I think, but the line is too long now, man. I, <laughs> I heard people started bringing chairs or what, <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, I, I really like uh, Mediterranean food. I guess like you could say Palestinian food or like Lebanese food. Um, that you know that stuff is is really good. That cuisine, um, amazing, and and Turkish. Honestly, man, I love food. So this is in rapid fire for me. This is like, <laughs> like you want the short list or the long list. <laughs> Shaquille, you got one? Uh, oh, no, I, th- I thought you were going to have a follow to that. Um, uh, I didn't want to take my food too much. Uh, <laughs> the food got me hungry, actually. Uh, but the bucket list uh, question is pretty interesting. Do you have uh, an activity that you have on that list, aside from a uh, place that you want to visit? Uh, oh, an activity. I hope I um, dunk a basketball before I leave this dunya. Uh, that's on my bucket oh, list. Well. But uh, I probably have to exercise or something for that. <laughs> um, what do I really want to do? I live a pretty um, unexciting life, man. I don't know. Spend a lot of time in the library. Oh, I want to learn Arabic, which is, you might think he already knows, but I'm I'm just wearing the topi for the... <laughs> Fake it till you make it, right? But um, yeah, I, I really need to learn Arabic. It's not even so much like a bucket list thing, but to, I mean, the treasure trove that's available in English of Islamic history is then nothing compared to what's available in, in Arabic. And I can't just wait for things to get translated or, you know, they might not get translated well or the meaning will be lost. So that's something that's huge on, on the bucket list. So make dua that I can do that. And uh, yeah. So what's your favorite Islamic topic that's not history? If you had to like, you know, if you had to study anything else Islamic, well, what, what are you going to? What, what is the, the go to? Uh, Sira. I mean, does that count as history? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's almost like, co- yeah, that is history. <laughs> but, um, I think um, Sira or uh, I'm, I'm really uh, maybe like maybe like. Um, like Tazkiya or Tasawwuf. Um, like, uh, just that, that's just part of your personal journey. And you, you pick up all of these gems about, you know, purifying the heart and, and constantly just, um, a lot of the, what we ourselves experience and what society is, is sort of kind of getting unraveled by like these mental health crises and things like that. There's a lot of different kinds of interventions that are important in, you know, trying to undo that at the individual level and the societal level. But, um, you know, this this whole discourse of the the diseases of the heart and 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 you know just just purifying your heart and getting clarity um, through the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam is I love reading about those things and and uh, you know it just just reading about them feels good right so it's like almost like an immediate kind of assaging your wounds situation but alhamdulillah so. To, uh, since we're coming to an end of the podcast, we have one last question for you that uh, we ask every single uh, guest here. Um, and the answer is that we get, like, it, this is actually one of my favorite parts of the podcast, and, and it's not because it's the end. And I, I feel I feel weird. I, I probably said that in one other podcast, and I hope, this, I hope, I hope they didn't take it the wrong way. But it, 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 it's, like, it's such a... <laughs> I was saying on every podcast I've been on. But it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, subhanAllah, it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear people's answers. Uh, and it's a question of, of, of um, what Relay is all about. So Relay obviously is, is, is inspired from the, uh, 
the quote of the Prophet when he said that convey, convey for me the one, one verse. Um, and it's also inspired from the concept of a relay race, you know, a, a team passing a baton trying to get to the finish line. And so, Hassan, if you had to pick three people to be on your team from Islamic history, and this is like the perfect question for someone who literally does <laughs> does this. I, I, it'll either be the hardest question or the easiest question, depending on uh, how, how much you look into it. But who would you choose on, on your team? From a Dao perspective or just from a from any perspective you want to take it, um, who are the three people that's going to be on your team? But you can't say the Prophet on them because that would be like, you know, everyone's going to say that. And then yeah. you can't say the Sahaba either. So anyone else from Islam's history? And I'll, I'll add another limitation. Uh, sure. It also can be Sultans, Kings. Well, I wouldn't want those guys on my Dawah team anyways. <laughs> Don't worry. None of those guys are on my, my relay list. <laughs> um but, but that's a great question. Um, it, it is almost uh, difficult to choose. Um, I would say, like, so, so again, thinking about Dawah, right? I would say I would want people who were culturally experienced, right? And I keep, I keep going back to that, um, uh, again, that uh, the fact that the Prophet wasallam took Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu because of his knowledge of people's sort of specific lineages and cultures and gave them sort of a personalized da'wah based on that, uh, going around to the different groups who had come for Hajj. Um, Ibn Battuta, a uh, famous traveler um, and also a scholar, right? He was he was he he served as a, a faqih in India for seven years as part of his travels. Um, and, uh, you know, he is someone who... Um, apart from the fact that he's just sort of prolific um, and, and probably the most accomplished traveler in human history that we know of, you know, subhanAllah. But um, I would definitely want to have him on my relay team um, just because of he embodied something I mentioned earlier, which is staying true to your own values while expressing this, this very strong sense of curiosity and appreciation for what others already have. And saying, you know, we don't want you to, we're not trying to erase you, your identity or who you are or what you love, right? All we're trying to do is guide it so that you can, uh, you know, reap the proper benefits of it in this life and then extend those benefits to the eternal life to come, right? Um, and so I think he was somebody who in, in many, many different contexts, he struck that balance uh, very well. One of my favorite stories, I don't know if we're running out of time, so stop me, but um, I'll just tell you a really quick one where he, um, you know, he traveled uh, for weeks. He got an opportunity to go and imagine this, to go to the Hagia Sophia Jami in Istanbul, right? Where uh, I know Sanjay, you have been, I don't know, Brother Shaquille, if you've been there yet. Um, inshallah, you'll get a chance uh, to go again. But even Batuta also went to that building, that same building, right? Um, and, and this is a marvel of the world. And, and obviously, it was a church at the time. This is during the time of um, the Byzantine Empire. Um, and they said that the only way you're allowed to go inside is if you bow down before the cross. Right. So this person has traveled weeks and uh, through extremely difficult weather. First of all, he had to beg some sultan for the opportunity. So it's a long story, but basically it wasn't like a very nice Turkish Airlines flight that got him there. He went through a lot to first of all get there. He gets to the door. They say you have to bow at the cross. He said, oh, I don't have to go inside. I'll just stand at the door. But I refuse to bow at the cross, right? I can go inside. I can, you know, okay, whatever. I did all of this to do and now, no, no, but no, right? So he's staying true to his his values in that particular situation. And, and at the same time, this immense curiosity. Another person, for the same reason I would want, um, is this uh, Muslim polymath Abu Rehan al-Biruni, um, who was, um, I don't know if I'm the only one here, <laughs> uh, but I guess we're continuing to record. But Abu Rehan al-Biruni, um, was uh, somebody who was, um, again, excelled in many different fields, had a lot of accomplishments in, in astronomy and mathematics and, you know, geography and things like that. But he's also the pioneering figure in the study of Indology, in the study of Indian civilization, because and simply because he happened to be situated in that area um, through a certain campaign that he was part of, 
even though it wasn't his primary area of learning, but he was so curious. He learned the Sanskrit language um, and he wrote the first and oldest existing book on a proper study of Indian civilization and describing yoga and all of these things and, you know, meeting their 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 leadership and their scholars and learning from them again while train staying true to his own values so building those bridges right and i think those bit those bridges have to be built before we introduce the conversation about islam right and they have to be firm so they don't break easily so have that familiarity have those conversations i'm trying to think of a third person who would be a really good example of that honestly no one's coming to mind but there's probably going to be like 10 that come to mind as soon as we stop recording but i think i spoke long enough anyway so i gave you two right but but i, I hope the message comes across that for me dawa is like has to be personalized right and has to be sort of um like based on on cultural knowledge and appreciating everything that you can appreciate about the other person because it has to be a two-way conversation Right. Um, at least from everything I've experienced and, and even, you know, there's basis for this in, in the Sunnah of the Messenger. So just so we can get that third person, if you had to choose someone from the last 200 years, who would it be? Uh, brother Sanjay. Right then. <laughs> <laughs> I pick Brother Sanjay. <laughs> I don't think I uh, I deserve to be anywhere near that team. <laughs> uh, in the last 200 years, I'm trying to think. I don't study. So the, the challenge is I don't study modern history as much. Uh, uh, so I just, I just I thought I was going to make it easier, but I think I just made it harder. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a time period. How about from 1500 to 1600? I didn't know there was going to be a test at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I could go down the list of travelers, people who uh, kind yeah, of, yeah. people who kind of exhibit yeah. that curiosity. You know, Ibn Jubair, Ibn Fadlan, you know, Cheng Ho, all of these interesting type of figures. But um, anyone, anyone with a with a healthy sense of curiosity, you know, and and the reason I'm I'm so enamored by these two particular examples. Um, honestly, I said it was hard, but it wasn't that hard to come up with them as soon as you asked the question, right? Because I, I use these examples all the time. Um, but I think I might have to make a longer list of examples just, just in case I get uh, trapped like this again. <laughs> I'll, if, so this is going to be on YouTube, right? If I think of someone, I'll leave it in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Just okay. Yeah. Um, Assam, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Jazakallah khair for being so generous with it. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa bless you and, and all your work that you do. And uh, inshallah, you got you to gotta come to New York uh, soon, man. It's been a while. Super inshallah. Jazakallah khair uh, for having me and to your team for starting this initiative. Uh, may Allah bless it. And um, I hope myself and, and all those who are sort of listening to this anywhere, like, let's support it. It's this good work, mashallah, and good team behind it. May Allah bless them. And all right well that's the end of the episode uh thank you all for listening and uh we'll see you again next week inshallah assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh assalamualaikum